It's December 2021, and President Xi Jinping is in discussion with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, as China prepares for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Our two countries have acted as responsible big power, starts Xi, uniting the international community in combating the COVID-19 pandemic and explaining a correct view of democracy and human rights, becoming a mainstay in upholding multilateralism and in safeguarding international equity and justice. Democracy, human rights, multilateralism, definitely not words we'd associate with Russian foreign policy and probably not words we'd associate with Chinese foreign policy, especially in wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But is this just Western bias? From the beginning of the war, Russian and China have been lumped into the same anti-Western, anti-NATO boat. In this episode, we'll be looking at how fair this is, whether China actually has that much to gain from this war, how deep its ties with Russia and Ukraine are, and what we can learn about how China operates and whether it can do anything to help speed up or end this war. Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast, looking at the far-reaching impacts of war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Chatham House's Senior Research Fellow on China, Dr. Yu Ji, and Professor Rana Mitter, Director of the University of Oxford's China Centre. I want to get some context on the history of Russian-Chinese relations. After all, they were the two main communist superpowers. And whilst one of them is firmly oligarchic and arguably kleptocratic, the other claims to be communist. Here's Professor Rana Mitter on the context of not only the Chinese-Russian relationship, but also the Chinese-Ukrainian relationship. The current era of Russian-Chinese coordination and friendship, although it's a friendship that has conditions, you might say, um, really begins in the late 1980s, because essentially through much of the later Cold War, China and the Soviet Union, as it then was, were very much at daggers drawn. They nearly went to war with each other over essentially differences in the Cold War interpretation of communism in the late 1960s. And while things cooled down in the 70s, they weren't really friendly. So it took actually the arrival of Mikhail Gorbachev, who wanted a reset not just with the West, but also with China at the top of Soviet politics in the 80s, and also the reality of realizing that as America became a more powerful country in the world, China would have to find other ways to essentially see that its back was covered. And that led to a rapprochement, is probably the best way I'd put it, that emerged in the late 1980s, early 1990s, at a time of huge global turbulence. So obviously in the late 1980s, uh, it was still the Soviet Union. And it's something that I really want to make clear that Russia has managed to spin itself as the sole inheritor of the entire Soviet legacy. Uh, I'm a big football fan, and it frustrates me that these mainly kind of Ukrainian and Georgian teams have uh, been kind of elided into Russia winning the, uh, the, the Euros in the 60s. This is the Dynamo Kiev factor. Yeah, about exactly, here, exactly. And... Um, and China, though, established its relationship a bit earlier than the Western powers because it was pre the fall of the Soviet Union. Did this feed into any form of a relationship with post-independence Ukraine as well? 
Ukraine was very much part of the wider mix of what China was up to at that time. So bear in mind that the links with the Soviet Union had a much longer history. Essentially, because China developed its own Communist Party from 1921 onwards, the Soviet example was a very important one to it. And many of the younger communists of the early 20th century would have read Russian literature. In other words, the idea of Russia being at the centre of the Soviet Union was something that was, and in some ways is, very much at the mind, in, at the top of the minds of leaders of today. But you're right that the other parts of the Soviet Union also had a role. It was, after all, at Baku in Azerbaijan back in the 1920s that the Soviet policy on minorities and ethnic minorities was articulated, for uh, for instance. In the case of Ukraine, the Chinese got pragmatic pretty fast. When they saw in 1991 that the Soviet Union was forming into what was then widely known as the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, they were keen to essentially set up relations with each of those. And the relationship with Ukraine became one that was perfectly friendly, not particularly deep, but certainly quite pragmatic. And it ended up with the situation that we saw on the eve of of this year's war, the Russian invasion, of China being the single biggest one country, single country trade partner of uh, Ukraine. The EU as a collective confederation is larger, but China is the biggest single country. And that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons for that is that Ukraine was inducted a few years ago into the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese infrastructure and geopolitical structure that's really existed for the last 10 years. So Ukraine on its own has definitely had a place in Chinese geopolitical thinking aside from its Soviet and Russian connections. Fast forwarding to more recent history, Here's Dr. Yu Ji talking about Chinese-Russian relations immediately before the war. China is the so-called strategic, comprehensive strategic partner with Russia. And even just right before the war towards Ukraine, there was a joint declaration on the 4th of February 2022 to the two countries to suggest that the collaboration have no limits. So it's just to indicate to you this bilateral relations is quite deeply intertwined. Now, on the other hand, and China also maintained the reasonably good relations with the successive generations of uh, Ukrainian pr- um, presidents. So either is the um, uh, various parties. And China has also been the very key source of um, import uh, of Ukraine uh, agricultural products. And also, China purchasing plenty of military equipments from Ukraine as well. Just to give an example, that China's first ever aircraft carriers was actually renewed based on the former Ukrainian aircraft carrier. You know, we've been speaking a lot about these kind of big picture state politics, but actually these two countries have single figures who are very dominant within their political system, Xi Jinping and, and President Putin, of course. What is the interpersonal relationship like between these two men? Okay, let me answer you the first question on the personal relationship and then also try to explore the difference in here. Now, the two men share a very similar personal ambition, which is to revitalize their own individual country. So Putin was much hoping that he would be able to construct another Soviet Union that returned the territory of the Soviet Union, return the spheres of influence of the Soviet Union within the vast land of Central Asia and Eurasia. Um, whereas for Xi Jinping himself, he has put forward this term, the so-called national rejuvenation by 2049, what's hoping that China would be able to, on a par with the United States, in terms of power, influence, and military might. And that was the, um, the personal ambition presence he had. But at the end of the day, I think when it comes to bilateral relations, it is really decided by um, what is the best, uh, what is the national interest of each country. 
Now, for the case of China-Russia, I think that this is a continuation within successions of uh, with um, successive or generations of the Chinese leaders of, since early 90s, from Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, then to Xi Jinping nowadays, is about having a reasonable and good relationship with China's biggest neighbor, which is Russia, and also having a reliable energy supplier and also a reliable force that will be able to counterbalance against the United States. So I think that was the consideration number one. Now, the second consideration, it is that China also, or the Chinese leadership, conclude the matter um, that by saying, United States, perhaps it is in permanent decline, and therefore China will have to look for another force that will be able to join together with China, again, to counterbalance against the United States. Although I'm not sure this assumption is correct, but that is certainly it is the assumption um, within the Chinese leadership. Now, very lastly, while we're talking about much similarity between President Xi and President Putin, but we also see the differences in terms of how the political system has been managed. Because um, as far as I know within Kremlin, that Putin is organized and also organizes politics around several oligarchs. Whereas on the other hand, um, the Chinese Communist Party seems to take a much more um, bottom-up approach that is to say, while well, you have the presidency um, on the very top and try to make a decision, but much of the policy input actually come from the provincial governors and come from other members of Politburo. So it is still very much almost like a shareholding structure that any day, even though you have the chairman try to decide things, but the shareholders will still have to give input. And is there any sense on on them as as men, how they get on as human beings? Is uh, or or is it just are they? Do you think they're above those kind of considerations when it comes to um, when it comes to interpersonal politics? Well, I think it's very different um, because first of all, most that there's a different family background. Um, presidency came from the so-called red princeling red family that he felt the Chinese Communist Party it is legitimate to run the country forever, and also he was sent to the countryside um, for eight years in time of his youth. Um, that he has learned how to get on with the ordinary people within China, and especially people that with lower income. So he was deeply popular among the populations that in lower income. Whereas on the other hand, for Putin, I mean, he's a former intelligence officer. So his um, operation model would be very different from presence. The term autocracy kind of gets thrown about, and I think I'm already realising just how different the, maybe at times, authoritarian leadership between the two countries are, and historically has been. That said, when you have these incredibly authoritarian leaders with tight control on their media, rumours do spread. Professor Ranamita, is there any truth or indication that China actually knew the war was coming? I mean, again, without having access to the highest mm. levels of Politburo connection, which, sorry to tell listeners, I, I don't have. <laughs> I would say that what we can extrapolate from external evidence is, I think, the following. China had, I suspect, some idea that the Russians might be up to something. Mm. But the idea of a full-scale invasion, I really don't think they did know that. What I think they think was going on was that Putin was going to move even further into Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, these mm. two oblasts on the uh, eastern side of, of Ukraine, in which there's already been since 2014 huge amounts of undercover infiltration and military act activity and a, a sort of 
raising of the temperature, you know, a bit like the famous story of the boiling frog being slowly boiled a little further, depending, you know, as the, as the pan is slowly heated up. That sort of thing, I think there was an idea that something might have been going on. And um, I, I think they wouldn't have been surprised at that. The full-scale invasion, the full-scale war, I would be surprised if the Chinese thought that, that was was going on. But to step back from that to the, the kind of premise of, of, of the question, I don't think that the friendship without limits, which is the term that I think was used on, on 4th of February when she and Putin met with each other, should be read in quite that terms. I think it's friendship without limits, a little asterisk at the top, and then only it says terms and conditions apply. <laughs> in other words, it's not a friendship that actually means that Russia can get away with anything it wants to uh, wants to do. And I think in this particular case, the fact that China has been hedging its bets, you know, neutral or abstaining in the United Nations, not supporting Russia, not against them, um, making it clear that it feels that all sides need to, to lay down their, their arms, but not specifying any names, but also making sure that it's got Russia's back in a whole variety of international institutions, including actually domestic institutions as well. Chinese social media, for instance, has been quite heavily censored. Pro-Russia commentary, still very much presence there. Pro-Ukrainian commentary, of which there was a lot, pretty much wiped out. So very much a sense at the moment of China hedging its bets, keeping its head down, hoping that this will be resolved elsewhere, maybe through the UN, and then we can move on. That, that's, I think, what Beijing really wants. Dr. Yuji, going through your kind of years of expertise, what could China do to help end the war? Is it, is it actually talking about China, you know, China is thousands of miles away, it shares a long border with Russia, but it's thousands of miles away from Ukraine. Is there anything material you think China could do to hasten the end of this war? Well, I think there are plenty of things that China can do. And firstly, while we're talking about humanitarian assistance that the Ukrainian much needed, and I think China, by presenting itself as being so-called responsible great power, and China should really speed up and accelerate the humanitarian assistance that much needed on the ground, firstly. Now, secondly, while we're talking about economic sanctions to crippling Russia, and I think what China has already done, which is to avoid um, making certain trade deals with Russia, apart from the existing regular trade exchange between Beijing and Moscow. So I think China would have to strengthen that and avoid making any necessary trade deals, and particularly in the military um, sector, and also in that sector, perhaps would involve in this war. So that is not just benefited for the rest of the world, but also save China itself against the from secondary sanction. So I think these are two things that China can do. Now, in terms of mediation, I think China's role is very limited. And we're going to remember that even though China, by being a great power, being a major um, state in the world, it has only shifted itself into the center of international politics since 1979. And the diplomacy that required, the finesse of the diplomacy that required for the mediation, it is really beyond the capacity of Beijing. Why, why, do, you, why do you say beyond the capacity of Beijing, just, just in terms of training, in terms of bilateral relations? I mean, obviously, they will have to know the historicals in and ins and out of this conflict. Um, so it's, it's a long-standing issue. It is not simply an issue between one country to another. It is also uh, religious conflicts. There's also regional language and ethnicity differences in here. And obviously, to be able to mediate on both sides, and that would require to have specialism to study on Ukraine and also the study of Russia. So within China, 
you do have a, a huge number of uh, diplomats who are Russian specialists. But while we're talking about Ukrainian specialists, and it seems to be quite few, it could be numbered very few. So that's why I said, in terms of capacity, I think Beijing is quite limited. Within domestic politics in China, what's been the the impact? You said earlier that it has had an economic shock. Uh, is that being felt in any way near the same way it's been felt in Europe with oil and gas prices, or is it something which is creeping up on on China? The impacts of war, the economic impact war in Ukraine, will creeping into the Chinese economy probably will be in quarter three and quarter four. Uh, as I said earlier, um, Ukrainian agricultural products is one of the major source of um, um, of agricultural consumption from China, and also um, that materials used to feeding the pigs and feeding the pork production. And again, China has been a major pork consumption country, and this would really push into the, the cost of living much higher than expected. Politically, because the, this year is the 20th Party Congress, is the time that the Communist Party is going to change the guard among the Politburo's. So President Xi was entering his third term, and he was much hoping that he could bask in glory and providing an economic prosperity in the politically sensitive year. But however, I think it's because of the COVID and also because we were in Ukraine has added that sense of stability he much needed and really he couldn't lend down that stability at all. So I think politically it would also be very sensitive for himself and also for the ruling Communist Party. I wonder whether you think there's a chance that NATO will begin to realign itself um, as an anti, anti-Chinese, um, not you know, militarily, but that will will look to be what it does as kind of Russia's influence and and military threats recedes in the face of kind of Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian resistance. Well, I think that's already happened, and given the recent introduction on the so-called Indo-Pacific strategy presented by United States and also being enthusiastically embraced by UK and other North Atlantic alliances, so I think that theater of a great power competition, especially in military terms, has already begun to happen in the Indo-Pacific region. And NATO is very much keen to play a big role for that. And let's see what is happening for the upcoming NATO summit. Now, secondly, in terms of NATO and also in terms of its relationship with Russia, at the end of the day, let's go back to the history that part of the China or uh, Sino-Soviet Union alliances and then back to um, 70 years ago, was based on ideology. And mm. of course, because at the end of the day, China is run by Communist Party. So that sense of ideology, one ideology against another, and seems to play very well too in the nowadays China. But what is the difference in this China-Russia alignment in this case compared with the 70 years ago between China and Soviet Union is that for this time, China is a much greater economic power and China's much greater political player for international stage compared with 70 years ago. Um, the position was simply turned upside down, where was the Soviet Union was a major player and China was a junior partner. So I think this time, the side has switched and also the focus has shifted as well. There have been various conclusions drawn from strength of the sanctions on Russia. One of them is that this is part of a great game directed towards China and China's territorial ambitions on Taiwan. 
I want to know whether there's actually any correlation between the situation in Taiwan and Ukraine. So there's a Taiwan analogy, but it's not the one that most people who take a quick look at it think it is. So let me explain the one that it isn't and then the one that it is. What isn't it? I don't think, I really don't think there is a direct analogy between the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's desires to take Taiwan into unification with the mainland. The main reason being that China's been thinking about unification for decades. And the idea that actually this sudden you know, move by the Russians, this invasion, provides a sort of trigger point, returning point, I think underestimates the level of planning there already is. I mean, just, in, I mean, just to take one example, to take the practicalities of how you would take Taiwan in a military sense, it's so different from Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine, we know the tanks were uh, gathering on the Belarus border, and then it's a land war, you know, classic 1930s, 40s stuff, European land war of a sort, we never thought we'd see, see again. Uh, you can't, I mean, I just said this isn't like a newsflash to listeners, um, Ned, but you cannot send tanks across the Taiwan Strait because they'll sink. Um, instead, you need amphi amphibious um, tactics. You then need to make sure that the beach you can get onto, most of Taiwan's beaches are very difficult to storm. If you get the right one at the right time, it's not impreg impregnable, very little is, but it's a tough call. And China's PLA, who war game these things literally very, very carefully, are perfectly aware of this. So most analysts, I think, would say that We've got a ways to go before we're looking at a military um, occupation. And anyway, the Chinese would much rather use trade, commercial, economic pressure, saying you're tied to the mainland economy. That's really where the pressure is going to come from. So that's the tactic. So I think the straight readover of invasion here, invasion there, that doesn't work. So where is the Taiwan analogy? Well, I think it's something much more interesting because it's one that the Chinese don't talk about. So what does this sound like to you? Leader of a powerful country neighboring another country tells leaders of a separatist part of that country, that they can declare an independent republic and that they'll be recognized. Well, that describes, of course, the way that Putin said just on the eve of invasion that he would recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics and independent from the sovereign state of Ukraine. That sounds remarkably like exactly what China says that if Taiwan does it, declares independence, then there will be fire and brimstone that will, you know, arrive uh, with, with no question at all. You know, declaring independence is the red line for China. How China would be able to articulate in a public forum that it's okay for Putin to say that Donetsk and Luhansk can declare themselves to be independent from Ukraine, but argue that the same analogy, of course, doesn't apply to Taiwan in terms of comparability is not entirely clear. And that's one of the reasons I've, you know, I've even asked actually a Chinese IR specialist the other day and didn't get a terribly clear answer on this as to whether there's much discussion of this in Beijing. I don't think there is, but it's, mu it's a much closer analogy than the invasion analogy. Has there been a, a, a difference in policy, an uptick on kind of cybersecurity within China since the uh, Russian invasion? You mean relating to the Ukraine issue in particular? Relating to the Ukraine issue in particular, but but has there been any marked shift in in the the media? What were the media allowed to report in more generally on foreign affairs, or has there been a focusing in, or has there been some freedom to report over the last few weeks? Certainly, since the invasion itself in late February, there has been a definite focusing and also um, constraint on Chinese media coverage of the Ukraine crisis and its implications for wider geopolitics. So take Ukraine first and then the geopolitics. On Ukraine, 
Essentially, very early on, you know, late February we're talking about, Chinese social media was bursting with a particular phrase that was noted by the excellent website. And if people don't know it, please do check it out. It's called What's on Weibo, uh, based out of China. It gives, you know, Western readers a really clear idea of what's happening on, on China's social media. And the phrase that emerged from that was, which means, it's always much, much snappier in Chinese, but it basically means, can't concentrate on work because I'm so obsessed with what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and this was basically a lot of people, ordinary middle-class people, never been near, near Ukraine in their lives in Shanghai or Chongqing or whatever, seeing the reporting, seeing the invasion, seeing the you know flames and fire and saying, gosh, you know, this is this is terrible. And that was certainly allowed for quite some time. And then it began to be shut down. And it basically has morphed into the situation we have now by which pro-Ukraine sentiments on social media are essentially cut out at this stage. There are a few, but they only kind of sneak through, basically, whereas pro-Russian sentiments, which there are also many, it has proved a very polarizing event amongst the Chinese middle class, is very visible. Chinese media are embedded with Russian military and report you know, the view from Russia, as you'd expect. And beyond that, I think there is sort of generalized statement about China you know, wanting peace, but very, very little discussion of this, the violation of Ukraine's sovereignty or Ukraine's own aspirations. Um, you know, there are no, as far as I'm aware, there are no Chinese media reports doing you know, exclusive interviews with uh, President Zelensky, for instance. In terms of the geopolitics, something that is very notable, and it's a sort of base note, you might say, kind of that's always thrumming under the, the main tune of, of the news, is something which basically serves most of China's self-projection in the world these days, which is the idea that it basically it's the fault of the United States. And in this case, it's, you know, it's echoing the Russian news line that it was the expansion of NATO what done it. Um, how this quite equates with the other parts of the Russian story about Nazis in Ukraine, which to be fair, the Chinese, as far as I can see, aren't pushing quite as hard. They're pushing the NATO line much more strongly. It's not entirely clear, but essentially it's part of a default mechanism, which is when there's a geopolitical situation, which this is one, where China is put in a deeply awkward position because it's caught between its argument that sovereignty matters above all, so Ukraine's has been violated, but also that it must be friends with Russia, which obviously is important even when Russia's um, gone off the uh, off the off the reservation. In these cases, blaming NATO is always the kind of go to uh, line, and you see plenty of it at the moment in, in Chinese media. But is there an argument that? If there was a peaceful, in inverted commas, regime change in Russia, China would stand the most to gain. Whatever, whatever comes next is unlikely to be pro-Western in Russia. I think that's right. But in a sort of small scale way, but not so small scale, China's got quite a lot of wins as long as it keeps its head, its head down. Now, it's a source for cheap um, uh, fossil fuels, which um, Russia's now you know, having to sell to China and India because the West won't take them. Um, it's getting a very good deal, as I understand it, on the, I think it's called the Sila Sibiri, the power of Siberia 2, the second um, gas pipeline, which actually I think the Chinese, if I have it right, are getting the Russians to pay for and then sell the gas cheaply to the Chinese. So, you know, as bargains go, I, I take my hat off to them on that. Uh, they're getting cheap wheat, getting cheap barley. Um, and at the moment, they are in a position where they're both, you know, Russia's friends and have their back, but also because of the abstention in the UN have managed to kept, keep a broadly respectable position, at least on the, the open, transparent side of international society. So while conflagration in Ukraine doesn't help China in any meaningful way, the sense in Europe, for reasons to do with where NATO's boundaries are, what Russia, what Putin might do next, doesn't apply to China. Whatever he does next, he's not going to invade Beijing. I'm on What's on Weibo now and on the Ukraine-Russia page. The first thing I've seen is a meme with a picture of Uncle Sam holding a petrol nozzle 
over a fire with a stick saying Ukraine on it, saying, why can't China do more to help put out the fire? What's really striking looking at this is I actually had to really search for Russia-Ukraine to come up. On nearly every other page, they're talking about the Shanghai lockdown. This war is definitely part of the Chinese narrative, but as both the experts say, it's not the dominant force in Chinese politics at the moment. It is a headache that Xi Jinping doesn't need. China has lots of its own problems. It's a country of 1.3 billion people. And lecturing them about what they should do probably won't help. That said, the fact that they are so in control of their media space has been a fascinating thing. The way in which it's played out has taught me a lot about how Chinese politics and domestic politics works. Next week, we'll be looking at the misinformation war. When it started, how it's being fought, and what it means for the future of the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Professor Rana Mitter and Dr. Yu Ji. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi and Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House. <laughs>